I'm Eleanor Tisdale, I'm the leader of our Angry Robot Horde, and I'm thrilled to have you with us to introduce two of our debut authors who blew us away when their books landed in my inbox. I'm so excited to introduce to you Chris Panettiere, who has written the gorgeous The Phlebotomist, which, I mean, you can see how beautiful it is. He lives in Dallas and Texas, and he's written this incredible debut kind of horror dystopian mashup. Um, because mashups are, of course, in the best tradition of Angry Robots. Um, but he also, because he's multi-talented, draws album covers for metal bands, which is a pretty cool side gig. Um, and then we also have the incredible Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire, which has this amazing pulpy Indiana Jones style cover. And this is by the wonderful Dan Hanks, who is based in the Peak District in England. And he's a freelance editor with a background in archeology. span um, so Captain Moxley has this kind of um, draws on his vast reserve of archaeological knowledge, uh, which he then chucks in a blender with some pulp, some blood and some Indiana Jones. Um, and it has produced this rather beautiful product at the end of it. Um, so I'm really, really happy to have you all here to launch in a very strange time. Uh, it's exciting to be doing our first digital event, uh, especially for two such incredible titles. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna let each of them do a little bit of a reading to give you a little bit of a taste of the book. And then we're gonna have a Q&A which I'll host. Um, and at the end, if there's any chance for you, the audience to have any questions, if you type them into the comments box, they'll come through to me and I can ask the authors. So because Chris is a known coward, he's opted to read second, um, which gives Dan <laughs> the lead. So Dan, would you take us all the way back and then a little bit sideways to an alternate Earth in 1952? Chris has only agreed to that because he's not drunk enough yet. So we'll get there. I am a coward though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Chapter one, Lady Liberty, New York, 1952. Shards of moonlight cut through broken windows, bathing the hidden warehouse beneath the Statue of Liberty in an eerie glow. Rows of wooden boxes marked authorised personnel only filled the shadowy interior. Crates in their hundreds stacked from the cold tiled floor to the ceiling, all neatly arranged, all quietly waiting for their turn to be shipped off site to destinations as yet unknown. All except the crate that suddenly exploded into splinters of pine. A man burst through it headfirst and fell to the floor in a bloody heap, his once immaculate grey suit in tatters. His fedora rolled to a stop in front of him. I already told you, he muttered, blindly searching the floor for something. His hat, a gun, whatever it was, he didn't find it in time. A dusty brown boot connected with his stomach. He doubled over again, coughing and wheezing like the last gasp of a spitfire running out of fuel. He had to spit the final few words out, along with several gobs of blood. I don't know where she is. The figure standing over him paused for the briefest of seconds, head tilted as though contemplating the merciful option. Then Captain Samantha Moxley stepped into the light, and kicked the man in the face. I don't believe him. He began to crawl his way back across the chipped black and white tiles, leaving a bloody smear in his wake. Why would I? She began to follow slowly, keeping a deliberate distance between them, enough to make him expect another attack, enough not to be caught by a trick up his sleeve. I know what lies he's been trained to tell me, how to manoeuvre the conversation around until I'm not sure what's up and what's down, how to make me doubt what I know to be true. He and his friends are masters of spin and bullshit twisting perceptions to suit their agenda. Reaching a stack of crates, the man pulled himself until he was sat up. He looked tired and beaten. She knew how that felt. I know, because I used to be just like him. He coughed and more blood splattered his shirt. 
Yet a surprising sound issued forth from, from his broken mouth now, filling the cavernous warehouse with an exhalation of pain and laughter. Had she broken him already, cracked his facade? Well, that hadn't taken long at all. He smiled through shattered teeth, knowing his guise of innocence wasn't going to de delay the inevitable any longer. Sam put a boot on his shinbone and crouched down, taking care to dig her heel in just enough to make him realise she could break him further. Her fingers reached out for his tie and straightened it. Then she slipped the knot right up to his windpipe and leaned in close. Last chance, agent. Tell me where she is and I might just let you live. He gave a whispered laugh. It no longer matters. You'll never reach your sister in time. The nine are not to be refused. You know that. I guess you should have done what we wanted when you had the chance. Sam nodded and let the cheap charcoal tie fall to his chest. So should you, she said. She reached into a pocket for the silver disc she always carried in case of emergencies. An experimental piece of weaponry she'd been given when she used to work alongside people like this. About the size of a dollar, a dollar coin, small and unthreatening. Unless you knew what it did. The man's eyes widened as he saw it. His lips started protesting weakly, but she didn't hear him now. Her boot held down his chest and she bent to slam the gadget onto his exposed neck. There was a sharp thwack as the hooks on the back fixed tightly to his skin. She pressed the button in the centre. Five. He grasped, he grasped for the disc, but she punched him in the face, hard enough to buy her time to rifle through the suit's pockets. Four. Her fingers found a folded piece of paper. She pulled it out quickly and glanced at what it said as he groggily struggled beneath her. Three. Yep, this was it, exactly what she'd come here to find. Two. Best of luck, she said. I believe you'll need it. One. She lifted her boot just as a shimmer of purpley black light silhouetted the man and pulled him screaming into another dimension. That was so good. All right, Chris, uh, do you want to make it a little bit more bloody in here? Sure, sure. So thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, the phlebotomist. So it can be easily found from space even. Um, and uh, But if, if it's okay, I think I'll feel more comfortable reading if I um, get in character. <laughs> Um, please do. Uh, you see, I came prepared as well. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'm not doing my main character justice here, but she does wear a pink wig so that if she's ever um, separated from her grandson, he can find her in a crowd. It is also why this book is so pink. So, I'm going to read from a section two thirds through the book. No spoilers here. Um, and just for framework, this is where the three sort of main feature characters, uh, Willa Wallace, uh, Locke, who is another older woman with Willa, and Kathy, who is a 14-year-old potential psychotic assassin, um, are trying to rob blood from a blood transport. Willa considered Kathy's getup. The wig was too big, her legs too spindly. They don't need to buy it completely, they just need to hesitate, said Willa, half trying to convince herself that it would work. Locke shook her head. I don't know, she's only 14. I look older though, said Kathy with an extravagant toss of the hair. <laughs> look, Willa pointed to a distant rooster tail of dust blooming up from the road. That's gotta be it. She dipped Lydia, Lydia is the name of their drone. She dipped Lydia to the tassels and accelerated parallel to the truck's vector, flying to a point several minutes ahead. 
She found a bend in the road where they could land unseen and set the drone down at the edge of the crumbling asphalt. Places, ordered Locke, running outside. She unhooked a few panels from the drone and heaved them spinning across the road, cracked a flare and shoved it into the dirt just underneath Lydia's front quarter. Drones were more catastrophic explosion risk than fire risk, but they were counting on the truck's pilot not having time to run a checklist on drone behavior in a crash landing situation. Willa took a blood bag from the duffel and for a moment saw the situation from the lens of only a few weeks prior when her life had been humdrum and predictable. Now she was immersed in a world she'd not known existed, doing things she'd never conceived of doing. She opened a small knife and slit the bag gently, careful not to produce too large a hole, and then held it high into the sunlight and let it drain over her face, chest, and arms. She squeezed the last dribbles from the poly and chucked the bag into the field. Holy shit, Willa, you look like Beelzebub, said Locke. Rub a little of that inside Lydia so it looks like you brained yourself genuinely. Willa knelt at the door and gathered some of the blood from a glob under her chin, wiped it on the door. Lydia was the wrong size and shape for a medical drone, but hopefully the color and badging would do the trick. Willa looked at Kathy, who sat on the bench staring off. You ready? asked Willa. Kathy rose and stepped into the road, her face inscrutable. He's about to come round the bend, Locke called, running into the crop rows with a rifle. Remember to stay the hell out of my line of sight. Willa laid herself half outside the drone and half in it, trying to think of the most natural way to have fallen dead after a traumatic head injury. She settled on a rigid-looking, head-turned, arms-to-the-side pose, as if she'd been dead before she hit the ground. She rubbed some grit from the road into her sticky face and tried to slow her breathing. Lying still now, she watched Kathy take the road. She was awkward in the kitten heels they'd given her to look taller, and her swollen belly was pronounced against the wind. While her dress inflated behind to a diaphanous billow, everything about the spectacle screamed that this was a child in costume, except her face. If they looked at her face, they would believe anything. Amazing. Thank you both so much for doing those readings. I think like they give you a really good taste of um, how great both of these books are and how unique they each are. And one of the things I wanted to ask both of you and talk a little bit um, as the first section of this Q&A is the kernel of these ideas, because Moxley is based in this Indiana Jones pulpy uh, historical world. And you have the phlebotomist, which draws from these kind of horror traditions, as well as these incredible kind of dystopian, um, there are points where it reminded me of the kind of YA craze from dystopia, um, and kind of blends them all together. And I wanted to ask you both about how you got to these worlds and these stories. Um, were you inspired by anything in particular? Dan? Yes, I was inspired by how bad Indiana Jones book was. <laughs> Because I, I walked out of that and I didn't know what to think. And, um, and I decided that I knew these stories so well. I'd grown up with them. I became an archaeologist or I at least studied archaeology on the basis of, of loving those movies and that character and that world so much that I knew those beats inside out. And when I saw that fourth movie, it didn't quite sit right with me. So I walked out like a, an idiot, thought, hey, I could write something like that. <laughs> so I, I went off and wrote a script. So that's how it sort of started for me. And then it just evolved over time. It, the characters changed, the story 
grew um, and then I turned it into a book and then it just kept evolving like that. So it was, uh, I was copying the best. That's how I started. So Chris, how about you? Um, like most of what I do, it was fueled by anger. Uh, and um, this was anger at, I was going to bed one night, um, you know, I'm in the States and um, they just passed a $17 trillion tax cut for the rich um, and did virtually nothing for the lower and middle classes. And I was very angry. And um, I then thought of a sort of trope, which I, I'm not going to get into because I don't want to kind of spoil it. But um, it started there. It was anger over how um, people are manipulated to keep people in power who do not have their best interests in mind um, through the manipulation of their own patriotism and other things. And that's what I focus on in this book is how patriotism, when there's a national tragedy, and that's, that's what happens in this book, patriotism is weaponized by the government to get people to do things that are very much against their interest and to ultimately surrender their rights. Um, and in this case, I wanted to explore that uh, in sort of an extreme way. And uh, we have a society that ends up being segregated by blood type. And um, so there was a lot of science and everything that went into sort of setting that up, but it kind of flowed very naturally and it's not too far off from our current situation. If you think about it, if we uh, shut our eyes for too long, we could end up there. So that's where it started for me. Mm -hmm. And for both of you, um, you both have these incredible uh, lead characters who are so vivid on the page. And I, I loved reading both of them. They're both these incredible female characters. So Dan, in your case, you have uh, Captain Sam Moxley. Is she inspired by anyone in particular? Um, she's, she's got my level of exhaustion. <laughs> I want, I wanted, I wanted her to be, um, older than we probably used to mm -hmm. see, um, and significantly more tired than most heroes are. And someone, she's just sort of tired of everyone's crap, to be honest. Um, and it, that was quite fun to, to explore as we went through the book. But um, I mean, you know, we we went from Indiana Jones, but I wanted her to not be an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. um, she's sort of archaeology adjacent, but her sister's the archaeologist, the sort of blinkered focus on on that ac academic side, and she's more cynical and she's seen how the world works and uh, yeah, it's just more cynical and tired, I think, than anyone I've seen before, which is, has been nice. And how about you, Chris, for Willa? Because Willa's, I mean, we know we know about the pink wig, but um, she's kind of a character of an age that you don't often see a female heroine be. Is she inspired by anyone? Did she come to you fully formed? How, how did you get to Willa? Well, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned, you know, sort of the, that a lot of our dystopians are are YA, right? So mm -hmm. they're, and, and I obviously the, the day after I came up with the idea for this, I kind of had that in mind because that's just what I naturally gravitated to. I was like, okay, well, I'm literally driving to work and I'm like, okay, so is my hero a young guy, a young woman, or maybe a young guy and a young woman? Like, let's let's be super unique here. And I knew it was going to be a society that was set up on this mandatory blood uh, donation scheme called the Harvest 
And I was like, well, my protagonist has to be someone who works in one of these stations where they take the blood. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the book, in the parlance of the book, they're called Reapers. Um, I said, so that's who it's got to be. And I said, okay, well, that's a phlebotomist. And I, my main character is mirrored after basically so many phlebotomists I've had whenever I've had to give blood or have blood taken or whatever. It was always just, it was my my circumstance, it was always an older woman. And I, I was like, you know, I want, I want this protagonist to be the, you know, be the protagonist, have a chance to be the hero of this story because of her age and not in spite of it mm-hmm. and because of her life experiences. And so my protagonist is a 67 year old grandmother who works for uh, this blood contractor called Patriot. And it's just lovely, I think, reading both of them is the, these very vivid, very real female characters who feel like their superpower comes through because they're so competent. They're both so competent. And it's amazing reading a world in which those characters take the lead. Um, Dan, I wanted to speak a little bit more to you about this idea of um, Indiana Jones and colonialism. I know we've touched on it a little bit already, but I was so excited when this came through because it felt like it was engaging with these really big ideas about how a culture responds to things being in museums and where those artifacts belong. So the Indiana Jones refrain was always that it belonged in a museum and didn't kind of delve a little bit further into how these museums can sometimes be structures which are used to oppress people and to take things and exoticize people. And this book, whilst it has like pulp roots and it's an enormous amount of fun to read, really kind of engaged me with those ideas. And I wanted to know um, where that thinking was coming from. Um, Was it you kind of kicking it back against the Indiana Jones legacy or was it your archeological background? Um, no, funnily enough, um, it was Twitter, <laughs> as, as most things are these days. Um, I studied archaeology quite a long time ago mm-hmm. in a very old school when I did it, so we didn't really touch upon those, those aspects. There was a lot of um, looking at the objectivity versus subjectivity, but not really exploring permissions or you know, rights. So it was really only in the last few years that these conversations started happening um, that grew out publishing, but also um, started talking about museums and, and archaeology itself. And I just sort of sat and listened to smarter people than me and, and took in as much as possible. And so these were themes I wanted to get into the book because it was a nice twist on what we're so so used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was very lucky that you were in a position to spot that and you helped me bring it out more in the book. So um, thank you for that. No problem. As I as I said, I was just it's so it's so exciting to find something which is engaging with with that thinking, um, especially you know I think often with genre people um, can sometimes write it off as it's it's not this great sandbox of ideas where you're playing out you know political oppression where you're playing out these amazing kind of current ideas, and that's that's so important. But Chris, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about blood. Um, because I, I think that you know me and you know that I like uh, gross medical stuff. So uh, 
when you were researching things about phlebotomy and things, what, what drew you to this idea of a blood kind of caste system, this way of structuring society? Was it just meeting and, and coming across a phlebotomist? Did it come from Willa or did it come from a kind of pre-existing interest in the kind of science of, of blood? It came from it came from sort of how I think of the people behind Patriot, the big uh, the big blood contractor, mm -hmm. and I wanted it to be. There was a few things I wanted to do. One, I I can't sit down and watch a horror movie because they scare me too much, but I can write horror. Um, and this is this is again like Dan had used the word adjacent. Mine is horror adjacent. This is not a straight up horror. Mm -hmm. This is much more sci-fi with a little tinge of horror. Um, but I wanted it to be visceral and I also wanted to explore, it's, it's interesting, there's an interesting parallel with these two books because what Dan's did so well was in these two sisters, you've got Jessica who is a hardcore archeology, span she's in the mold of Indiana Jones. The right place for this is in a museum. And you've got Samantha who has a sort of more mature, wiser view of it which is, I'm not so sure that's the apex of where things need to go, right? I'm not so sure that's um, the right answer. And in mine, I wanted to sort of take some ideas that people um, accept completely, um, and especially in my country. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, from living here, this is what I've experienced, that there are some things you don't question. Um, you don't question, uh, flag wavers. If you've got a flag on, a big la flag lapel pin, um, if you talk about how much you love the troops, if you talk about patriotism, but then you go and do things that are actually unpatriotic, that are harmful to your country, it's very hard for people to call those types of actions out. And I wanted to highlight that and I wanted to do it in a very visceral way. And so I wanted to do it with blood. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to create a segregated society, but I didn't want to do it through any traditional means. I wanted to do it in a way where every single person who reads the book could see themselves in that society and being victimized by that society. The only, the only thing that, that you have really is the rolling dice of heredity, heredity, which is, are you born with a good blood type? that's a universal donor, or are you born with one that is in less demand? And so that's sort of where it came from. I wanted it, I wanted the whole thing to kind of cut right to the chase and take people out of their allegiances um, when they read about that. So that's how blood sort of came about. Do you have a favorite um, blood fact you can tell us from your research? You know, um, I learned a lot of blood facts. Um, <laughs> And um, so many, but you know, one of the main ones that I learned is, you know, there are the, there are the main eight blood types that we all sort of think of from the ABO group, right? Which you by know, the way, you get a fun and useful chart. Yes, yes. Because there is a lot of discussion about compatibility because this book creates an economy based on blood. So if you're O negative, you're a universal donor, you're, you can give your blood to anybody, that blood is gonna be worth the most. Mm -hmm. If you're AB positive, your blood can only go to other AB positives. So your blood is worth the least. 
so I'm worthless just so you know it, yes I, yeah <laughs> yeah and and so this sets up a situation where you've got people who can sort of get by because they could sell their blood for more and people who get virtually nothing for their mm -hmm. blood in fact I mean by the second page there's actually a infographic that goes out where the blood prices are given for mm -hmm. each for each type and um so those are the eight main sort of blood types we all think about. And the reason we think about those is those are the most um, reactive. So it's very important to make sure that when you are transfusing blood, that those blood groups are known because people can die from a bad transfusion. The, and that is where my favorite fact comes from. This is totally true and it's, it's addressed in the book the first sign, and this is taught to medical professionals, the first sign of a bad transfusion is a sense of impending doom. Oof. Yeah, and that it is not, it is not, it is not pain, which is also a, a potential sign. It's not skin coloration change. It's not um, all these other things. Those, those happen too, but it is a articulable sense of impending doom that, <clears throat> medical professionals are trained to ask about. So I just, I, I just thought that was so incredible. And it's just this, this biological feeling of wrongness. And so you can see how so much of that, just portions of the book wrote themselves mm -hmm. with facts like that. And so, and, and, and I did get a laminated um, quick reference guide that I made reference to quite a lot, but I also did a lot of internet research and talked to, a few professionals, although they don't, when you, when you reach out to a doctor and you say, can you tell me how to do a vein to vein blood transfusion? Um, I'm writing a book and, and they're like, <laughs> um, that, that impending sense of doom. I've had that for the past, past four years. Mm. So, so I also learned about that. That is called being a writer and, mm. and it's just like receiving uh, bad blood. Okay. So there's no cure. Sorry, sorry guys. <laughs> yeah. It's very sad. Um, and Dan, how about for you? Because you had the sort of research you were doing is probably a little bit more based in in the traditional stuff that we learn a little bit about when we're at school. This kind of like World War Two setting. Were there any like cool things you unearthed whilst you were doing your research? Um. No, because probably because I didn't do as much research as Chris. Um, you already knew it. <laughs> I, knew, I knew some of it, and it was nice to take what I already knew and riff mm -hmm. on it. It was, it was certainly interesting to do a little, more, little bit more digging into the 50s and to see how closely aligned it is with some of the stuff we're going through today, mm -hmm. um, which was both interesting and worrying but um, I'm afraid I don't have any fun facts for you. That's okay, I'll, I'll manage, um, I guess. Uh, we did find out that go-kart wasn't a term until post the book. That was one of the things that came out in editing. Yeah, oh, there was one. I, I, yeah. I caught a review that probably wasn't too favorable and- um, <laughs> You're not supposed to do that, Dan. I know, but that's <laughs> Like Chris has been a good reader. Oh, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm a total <laughs> drug addict when it comes I'm to I'm disappointed that. in both of you. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, I caught this one, and, and the guy was absolutely right, because there, there was no captain in the RAF um, back then. But he didn't necessarily get that title in the RAF. It's true. It's true. That's what we'll say. Do you want me to write a reply to it? Yeah, I think we should just pull out now, and it was totally intended. Okay. It's always yeah. a good policy to, to go and attack reviewers. Um, if it helps, um, you know, I don't think a single... He was very helpful. I don't think a single book has been published without some sort of uh, historical error in it. So it's fine. Anyway, I wanted to move on a little bit and talk about the covers. So um, they are both incredible and very different covers for different reasons. So um, obviously the phlebotomist is a violent assault on your eyes, whereas uh, the Captain Moxley is this incredible piece of kind of retro movie art um, it feels very in the kind of trad, pulpy vein. How did you guys find the experience of, of getting to your covers? Because I think a lot of people don't really um, know what the process is when you're, um, you know, an author and you're trying to work out what sort of cover your book's going to have when you're working with a publisher. So how did you guys find it? You have to say nice things because I am your publisher. <laughs> uh, Dan, you want to go? Well, I mean... I think we all love Chris, and the best thing about Chris is that he designed it. Himself. Yes, um, Chris's. Uh, so we sent over a image to Chris, um, which was like very early stages of this, and so it was like an anatomical heart drawing. And Chris was like, took one look at it, and was like, "I can do it better," and he did. So <laughs> well, so so I joke. I joke with Gemma, who was my editor, and. Um, She's just amazing and I love her very much. Um, she went back and forth passing along the designs to me from Glenn Wilkins, right? And yes. he, it, first of all, the patience uh, of both of those individuals to deal with me, because I've been doing art, you know, on a semi-professional basis for 10 years. And I was like, you guys are never gonna assign another artist author ever because I was kind of a pain in the ass. You've ruined um, it for everyone. <laughs> I know, right? Um, and, but but what, what, what was really cool is I really thought I had a conception for what this cover should look like. Um, and I was totally wrong. The, the, only thing, the only thing I knew I wanted was hot pink. So thank God we got that. I love mm -hmm. that and, and the, the gold. Um, and those colors are very representative of what happens in the book. But, um, yeah, the the first covers came over and I mean Angry Robots awesome because they sent like five different versions and then they sent another five and we sort of narrowed them down and they were instantly in this old school vintage medical illustration style and I just thought I I thought it lended a gravitas to the story that I didn't have in mind when I was thinking about what kind of cover um I wanted and I also of course, all my family are like, oh, are you going to do the cover? I'm like, no, I don't want to do the cover. My style of, of art is completely different than actually what ended up on here. Um, I, I did this drawing, but that was only because I saw, I said, okay, we're going to do a medical illustration style drawing. Um, and that's sort of how it played out. A lot of patience on the part of Angry Robot. And then, you know, kind of rolling the dice and allowing me to, to draw this image. And what I like about this cover is there are five very distinct references to things that happen in the book on the cover. And so when you come across them as you're reading it, it's really cool to go, oh my God, there it is. 
Um, so anyway, I, I could not be happier. And you know, you can guide planes in to land with this thing. No, it's 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 so good. Um, and you know, it's one of those colors that sometimes you're in a cover meeting and people don't necessarily think it's the rightest idea because it's so, so aggressively bright pink, but I, I genuinely, I think it's a gorgeous cover. So I'm so thrilled we went for it. Look, I mean, from, from the, from the, from the angle of, Hey, you know, you want to get people's attention. I, I don't think you could go any hard, more hardcore than this other no. than attaching lights to it. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> production time. will kill me and Dan's on the other hand we have this um so uh Dan actually when he was writing and um, when stuff was being submitted there's another author on AR's list which is this this is kind of comparable to it's if you enjoyed um if you enjoy Dan you'll probably enjoy Essay Sador's stuff if you enjoy Essay Sador you'll enjoy Dan so um and he did the covers and Dan you wanted this right right Oh yeah, <laughs> I saw his cover for Fury from the Tomb um, whenever it was first released, and I was like, "Now that's a cover. That's that's a cover I could I could live with all day long." And then when I got the email offer from you, I I am ashamed to admit it, and please don't take this the wrong way, but I squealed when I read the bit about the offer, but I squealed harder when I saw that you wanted to get him to do the cover. Because I absolutely love his work. So it's a guy called Dan Strange, and and he's just done this beautiful cover, which is pretty much ripped right out of my head. Because you were very communicative about um, you tried to bring me into the the process. Uh, you wanted to know what I wanted to see, and you know, and we get we got to the end stage. And Chris, like you, I was I was trying not to piss him off too much, but I was going like maybe just this bit more shading. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Do you think I'm really horrible? Why? Did you think I was going to be awful and be like, no, you can't have the more shading, you know? No, no I thought I thought it would annoy Dan because I'm not an artist. I'm not like, I'm not like Chris, so I don't know what I'm doing. But for me, you know, a Neanderthal to go, can I just have a bit more shading there, please? I thought, no, they're going to kick me anytime now but you were brilliant the whole process was, was i brilliant. mean i truly thought i truly thought and and on what dan is saying i mean i truly <laughs> thought i had badgered Gemma so much about the cover because it went through so many different iterations of what the illustration would be and everything mm. i was like i was like you know what I, i'm a debut author they're going to cancel the contract like they, they're just going to throw me in the trash because i'm being such a pain in the ass on this thing <laughs> This is what always happens behind the scenes though. Um, you have to have like 6 million versions of a cover. It's very rarely wrote on the first time. It's often this enormous collaborative effort of, and you know, I think in the case of the phlebotomist, we were changing it right up until the print date. It was real close. Um, and in the case of this, we had like a lot of back and forth. There was even like a, another sketch that was designed for it. So it's quite an interesting process to talk about them because they're both very different covers, but they're both very beautiful in their own ways. And this is one that, you know, an artist did out of house. And this is something that was kind of designed as a collaborative effort between the designer and the author, which is quite rare, by the way. Um, it's not often an author genuinely can draw their own cover. Gen often when they say that they're going to do it, I worry. I worry <laughs> a lot. Um, so it was a relief that it was good when it came through. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, they're both they both look amazing and we're so pleased with them. And I think the fun thing about the um Captain Moxie is it's the smaller format because it's paying homage to that kind of um pulpy pulpy history. Yeah. So we've got a little bit longer on questions before we uh, kick it to the audience Q&A. And Dan, I wanted to talk a little bit more about siblings. Um, Chris actually mentioned um, it a little bit, but you have these two incredible sisters in it. You've got Jess and you've got Sam. And um, when I was reading it, my favorite thing about um, editing this is that there were so many moments um, when they are just so exasperated with each other. And I vividly remember wanting to just pull my sister's hair out when I was like 15, you know, when your siblings can make you angry, like no one else, like that anger is unacceptable in any other setting, but you can scream at your sister. Um, is there like a sibling relationship this is based on? Is there, where where did this kind of amazing rapport come from? See, I've got to be careful now because my brother and sister might be watching. Mm. Um, there, there, is, there is a touch of that, I mean, I, I grew up with a significantly cooler younger brother who is now taller than me and a firefighter. So a tragedy. It really sucks. <laughs> but so there, were, there were elements of that relationship growing up where we clashed. We had difference of, differences of opinions on things. We saw the world differently. Um, so I put, I mean, it was very angsty when you saw it and you helped me bring it back. So they are slightly more loving towards each other, although not quite. But, um, but there were certainly elements that I, I drew on from my own experience um, in that. And I love that relationship because it is the core of the book and it is, it, and it helped me explore the, the sort of post-colonial attitudes uh, and Sam's reluctance to, you know, put everything in a museum because, you know, we need to know whose museum and, and maybe that isn't the right, the right way to go. And Jessica was much more focused on, you know, grab this artifact, put it on in an exhibition and, and, and show it off. Well, Jessica's also kind of younger. She's got that kind of ambition and steel and she's kind of in the, you can tell that she's in early stages of what will be a very glittering career. Um, and you can see that absolute focus that probably if we'd met Sam about five years earlier, would have we would have absolutely seen them side by side as as you know um aside each of the same coin and you really really get that you can get the frustrations and you can also get the frustrations i think of jess finding sam incredibly patronizing when sam's like oh well i'm just older you'll understand when you're a little bit older silly jess um and there's that kind of like amazing play between them i just thought it was a, a really fun relationship that you you put on the page yeah, um so both of you um so obviously you uh went through the terrible process of being edited um really really tough times for both of you um did you have to so even before it got to um your kind of editor stage because i know writers do a lot of editing generally before it even leaves their hands and dan in your case it came through an agent as well so it was a slightly um you know, you had Sarah's incredible eye on it. By the way, Sarah Megabos is Dan's agent and she is phenomenal. Um, did you have to kill anything or cut any scenes or characters that you really miss? Chris? Chris? Yeah, so I had, I had a very unique um, experience because 
mostly what you hear when people talk about editing is they're like, you know, I turned in 130,000 words. They said cut 25,000 words or 30,000 words. And boy, that was so hard. And it was, it was really, really hard, but now I've got a real lean piece and, and we're good. I, I, I had the reverse happen. So I turned in something that was 72,000 words. It was very quick. It was all plot. It was just like, boom, boom, boom. And uh, Gemma, when she called me to do our um, Skype, where we went over the different um, elements that she wanted to focus on and to beef up, she went through 25 different, different points. And then she also sent me the manuscript, which was, you know, chopped to bits. And she, all of those 25 points weren't get rid of this. It was all more, 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 more. And that was so important because it, it forced me to do it was absolutely necessary, but I didn't quite see it. I was so locked in this newish author mentality of make the reader turn the page, make the reader turn the page. And so everything had to be just like moving, 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 moving. And that, that, that's a rookie error. And, um, she made me slow it down where it had to be slowed down and add characterization, some additional world building, some beef up some of these characters. So that was extremely, extremely vital to the story. And what was really funny is at the end of that meeting, she said, I said, okay, well, um, I'm looking at it and I go, that looks like about another 25 pages. And she goes, I think it's more like a hundred. <laughs> and so um, I had one month and I was actually in trial. Um, my day job is a trial lawyer and I was actually in trial in New Jersey for that entire month. And so every night I would go to trial, try the case, come back, work and get ready for the next day's stuff, go to my hotel room at like 11 PM and edit until one or one thirty every single night. And, um, and then I, at the end, and I'm a, I'm a total like, schedule keeper. If I, if I have something that's due, it's due. It was so much that I asked Gemma for like two extra weeks. She gave it to me, no problem. And we got it done. But the fact that someone asked me to add a hundred more pages was something I never, ever, ever thought would happen, but that's what happened. So it wasn't, I didn't have to kill any darlings really, other than I did want it to be a musical. That's not, mm -hmm. true. but, um, but, uh, I had to add darlings, I guess is how you'd put it. Um, give birth to more darlings, but mm -hmm. I, it was a hundred pages worth and it ended up being very close to that. It was like 75 or 80 pages that were finally added to the manuscript. Um, how about you, Dan? Um, well, my edits came at the beginning of uh, lockdown. So the darlings I wanted to kill weren't necessarily in the book. Mm. Um, so that was that was kind of tricky doing three three or so passes on the book with children at home. You're not sure what the hell's going on in the world. Our house isn't particularly big, so <laughs> you can always hear them. Um, so there was a lot of stuff going on, but I think I got quite lucky. I mean, I didn't add as much as as Chris did, but it was more a case of of adding and changing my darlings i guess mm -hmm. that central relationship with jess really was dialed back and and spun in a different direction so it's a little bit more sisterly a little bit less angsty um we really pulled out the post-colonial elements and and brought that out more uh especially with one of the bad guys colonel arif near the end 
um, and and just added a new dimension to that. So it was more a case of changing the darlings, luckily. Yeah, we had some stressful last minute translation as well, um, yeah. which never my friend, pardon? Never use Google Translate because it never, never use, never. <laughs> never comes back again. Um, fortunately, one of my friends uh, is a Arabic scholar um, who is friends with lots of Arabic scholars. So we called upon her expertise to help us out. Um, so I actually think we're nearly time for the Q&A. So um, we've had some comments coming in uh, from the video stream, I think from YouTube and from Facebook and from other places. Was Captain Moxley inspired by a real life World War II heroine? That's for you, Dan. I drew from a variety of sources. I think one of them was a, a woman named Nancy Wake. I think that was her name. I read a piece the other day that, written by um, an author a Canadian-Australian author called Tara Moss, who who wrote about seven brilliant, amazing women um, at this at this time. There were a couple mm -hmm. in there that I had used to to draw on, um, but my my granddad was actually in the RAF as a Spitfire pilot, so it was always something I wanted to to pull out because I grew up with that kind of atmosphere and that kind of knowledge of his past. Um, so that was something I wanted to draw on too, but there wasn't anyone specific, no. And I've got a question for Chris now, which is, um, is the dystopian future you describe an expression of pessimism about the direction in which the world is going? Which I feel like we've touched on a little bit. Yeah, so um, it's tough to look around right now and not be pessimistic. And I, I, have, I have some very kind of broad brush ideas about where humankind is headed. Um, those are probably not good, but that it is in some ways, you know, a society governed by a mandatory blood trade um, might be a little bit too optimistic based on where we're headed. But it, it, I keep, I keep seeing when in our early reviews, people kept saying how fun this story was. And I decided that it's a new category of book fun dystopia. And um, it is hopeful. It's definitely hopeful. Um, and, and it leaves that, it leaves that in, in several different elements along the way. But I do, I do think it's very tough right now to go, we're just racing towards the end of a cliff as quick as we possibly can. And there's no way to candy coat that, right? I mean, if I would love to go, no, everything's gonna be rosy. I think everything's gonna be great. We're gonna turn everything around. And I think we're real near the precipice. Now, here in the States, I think we have an opportunity to change things shortly. Um, we may or may not, um, but you know, this, this book, um, is sci-fi is it's funny. People say, don't bring politics or social issues into sci-fi. That's all sci-fi is. Um, and so that's what this is. And this is a allegory for a lot that's going on. And it is a critique of, of what's going on. There's a feature of this that I took right from our current world. There was a proposal made by someone in the Trump administration that, wouldn't it be cheaper instead of putting people on welfare or something like that, just to um, make them a box of food and we could give people these boxes of food. And I have something in this story called the box and the government subsidizes people's food with the box. This takes place in 2067 and people are talking about it now as a real thing in 2020. So again, my anger at that caused me to embrace it for this, to say, this is not 
something that is far off. This could happen. That said, there are more good people in this world than bad people. That's a fact. It just happens. I think that the bad people um, also really, really like power. And that's why often we get we get um, thrown in the wrong direction. So I'm very pessimistic about the long-term prospects for humankind, but I am optimistic about the good that people can do in the meantime. And hopefully that prevails. That's good. I, uh, I think we all need a little bit of hope and optimism. And also reading a the thing I love about um, dystopias often is that they're an imagining of tearing down a system and how one can rebuild. And I think it's really important that those sorts of stories are out and about there and letting people engage with them in creative, fun ways, as well as the kind of exhausting works of activism and showing up an allyship and voting, which is all extremely important as well. There are ways to enjoy and engage with the ideas in the fiction that you read too. So I have another question for both of you. Um, so it is, if your book was being turned into a film or TV show, who would you choose to play your main character or characters? For, for me, it's very very easy. For Willa May Wallace, it would be Alfre Woodard, um, who's, who's a phenomenal actress here in the States. Um, that's just who I see. I, I wanted an older African-American woman and that's just, I, that's who I act, envision. Um, my mother who is, um, very, very supportive in my um, writing career has suggested I send the book to a variety of actresses. <laughs> and, and who knows? I mean, <laughs> who knows? I mean, I sent, I sent the book to you guys and it, and it mm. worked, right? So who, who knows? <laughs> Got to try. Um, how about you, Dan? Uh, it was always either Emily Blunt or Gemma Arterton for me in the, in the role of Sam Moxley I just think they they have that um they have that quality they're a little bit you know they can do that wink to the camera they can probably take a a an on-screen punch um and and you know like Harrison Ford always did so well it, you, it made him look vulnerable but you knew he he had the ability to get up and and give it Carry back on, yeah. which they're, Sam is very good at she, God she gets up a lot yeah maybe you know Maybe it's unrealistic, but hey. Um, <laughs> by the end of, about, by the end of your book. <laughs> how about Jess? Do you have someone for Jess? I don't. No. Oh, I'm gonna have to no, leave I'm, you with that one and think yeah. think on it, and then let me know. Okay. Um. Right. I have another question from the audience, which is: Did you have a favorite scene to write, uh, or there was it, or was there a particular section or scene you found particularly difficult to write? Yeah, I did. Um, the, I, I'm not going to tell you, get into a lot of detail because I don't want to spoil it. And to be clear, mm -hmm. this book, the phlebotomist has a, I wouldn't call it necessarily a spoiler. It's a surprise. And, mm -hmm. but it's early in the, in the story. It's not like the big buildup to the end, but, but people have enjoyed that surprise. So I'm not going to get into it, but the putting a very realistic main character, this main character, Willa Wallace, who has lived a very sort of, um, it's been a tough life, but it's been a normal life, not out of the mainstream. Taking her and putting her into a completely bonkers scenario that no one in history has ever been put into, except in fiction, um, that was very hard to write. You know, how do you how do you write those a reaction to that? Right. I see it done really two ways when I read other stories where something that is pure lunacy 
happens to somebody. Either they react very violently and there's lots of screaming and cussing and shock and awe and you're trying to write that or they're sort of circumspect about it and they just sort of are like, okay, this is happening and, and trying to figure out how to, what the right temperature is for that character in that situation is very, very tough. And there's a few of those that happen in this book that, that it was a lot of trial and error for me to figure out what the right, how to calibrate her reaction mm -hmm. was when put into those sort of crazy situations. I mean, Dan's got one near the end of his book. Yeah, how about for you, Dan? Was there anything that you particularly liked writing or found very hard to write? I mean, for a book that has some of my favorite tropes in it, you know, there's a seaplane chase, there's a truck chase. Um, it, there was a moment right in the middle of it where Sam is in a tomb surrounded by the soon to be undead. And it's a very quiet moment where she sort of, she sees her future almost. And the others are all sort of starry eyed over over the artifacts and she's going actually no this is all wrong and it's just that little twist of her path's going one way and then she goes that she, no we need to go this way mm -hmm. and i really i i love that scene and it's it's probably the quietest scene in the book but it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to write that one sometimes the quietest scenes have the biggest gut punch i think so you have to have those moments especially in amongst car chases and seaplane chases you know you need, yeah, you need to give us time to breathe just a little bit. Maybe give Sam time to have a nap. I mean... That's, that's the sequel. He's basically... <laughs> Sam takes a nap. The, 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 front, the front cover is actually one of those old school like pillow covers, so you can actually use it for a, a pillow. Our next question is, um, for both of you, would you potentially want to write more books set in these worlds? If not, what would you like to write next? What have you already been working on? I'm interested too. So I do have... I've got a third of, of a sequel written if um, if a sequel is in the cards. Um, and I also have a novella prequel um, that uh, I've been kind of ruminating on because there's a lot of, can I say lore sort of um, mm -hmm. involved in, in my story. And uh, I think that would be a really fruitful prequel. Um, but as for the sequel, this, I envision this, it, it's completely, you know, I look, I followed all the advice of everybody in the whole world. When I wrote this book, this is a standalone book. It works as a standalone. Um, but there are a few threads. Um, there are places it can go. And so I'm ready for that and excited about it. Um, in a few different respects, expanding some of the POVs, cause there's kind of a, I really love this cast of characters. And, you know, for better or worse, I've been reading a lot of The Expanse and um, The Expanse has approximately 1 billion uh, POVs. So if so, that has influenced my thoughts about the sequel. So I, I, I am ready for a sequel um, or a prequel. And uh, in the meantime, I'm writing a couple other things uh, that are unrelated to this. How about you, John? Yeah, uh, anyone who's read the book will know that there there are places we can go next, and I would absolutely many love, places, many places, but I would absolutely love to explore them. Um, so I guess we'll we'll see. The only uh, I'm writing a couple other projects at the moment. Um, the probably the most fun of which, oh, they're both fun, but one is one is a bit different to what I'm normally used to, um, but I can't talk about it. 
so I'm doing that on the side. But the other one is the middle-aged British Ghostbusters at Christmas that I've I've told you about, which I'm still it's I'm such still... a good pitch. It's such a good pitch. Oh my God. <laughs> it is right now. <laughs> it's just a pitch. I love it so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm closing in on the end, so um, yeah, maybe you'll see it soon. Yeah, and we'll all be back in lockdown for winter, so it's not like <laughs> yeah. Bad, so. Oh yeah. Um, actually, that's one question, and I'm sorry to the audience questions, which was a follow-up, which I wanted to ask you. How have you guys found trying to be creative in a pandemic? Well, you know, Dan and I have become very good friends, actually, um, through this, uh, along with Rob Green, who's also a Angry Robot author who wrote The Light Years. Um, Rob was sort of the catalyst. He he sort of got us together, and we do we do weekly sort of chatting sessions, um, which have been really great. Because for the first you know three months of this pandemic, I luckily I was editing the phlebotomist. I had something I had to do, but creatively, other than a couple little short stories, I I just couldn't do it. I could barely read. You know, um, I was pretty depressed about everything that's going on, and it's only gotten worse. But it's interesting how cyclical you know, our brains are, I guess, um, because at some point my brain just said, Hey, you know, you're sitting there being depressed about the world is, um, is not going to change mm -hmm. it. So, you know, do what you can. And then if you can, if you can write, you should do that. And so I've been getting up every morning and, and writing, and I have been able to be fairly productive, but, you know, having this writer's community, um, even if we are thousands of miles apart, has just been hugely helpful to have that kind of touchstone um, once every couple of days or once a week. And I encourage all writers to try to reach out into their groups and make those connections and then stick with it because it really does help. Yeah, agreed. It's been really nice watching everyone kind of support each other as well. I think it's a it's a weird time to try and be creative. And I know, Dan, for you, it's it's you've been, you know, trying to do homeschooling as well, and it's been probably very hard to do anything creative at all. Very long. No, put it that way. We we are too and we just we just my daughter's in the yard on a 30 foot leash. I mean we mm. gave up. Um but you know she she's you know she eats grass and digs holes and stuff. So she's six, you know I mean great okay. <laughs> parenting. You think he's joking though, but if you <laughs> but no don't ask me to rotate the camera. <laughs> So thank you both so much. It was really, really great to have this chat. Um, and to everyone listening, um, I just want you to know that there should be links where you can um, buy and order a signed and dedicated copy if you'd like to, and also support um, both Dan and Chris's local bookshops. Um, as ever, you can always get the eBooks directly from our website as well, and they're always DRM free. Um, if you buy them from an indie bookshop, we will send you the ebook for free if you just email us the receipt, uh, which is a nice little perk. But I'm so thrilled that we've managed to launch these two incredible books. Um, and thank you all for joining us. And thanks to Dan and Chris for being amazing writers and all round great guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you.